Welcome to the podcast series from the Decision-Making Voices from the Field Leadership Seminars at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.harvard.edu backslash translation. Good afternoon. My name is Michael Ulrich and I'm an MPH student in the Law and Public Health program. It is my great pleasure to introduce our speaker for today, Governor Jim Doyle. He is currently legal counsel at Foley and Lardner, a law firm representing healthcare clients from large integrated systems to small startups. He also serves on the board of trustees of the Kaiser Family Foundation, and he is co-chair of the advisory committee for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation on the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. Governor Doyle served as governor of Wisconsin from 2003 to 2011. He is a graduate of the University of Wisconsin-Madison and Harvard Law School. And in 2012, he completed a fellowship at the Institute of Politics at the Harvard Kennedy School. <clears throat> Governor Doyle has demonstrated a lifelong commitment to education and public service, including volunteer work with the Peace Corps, providing education and legal services in Tunisia and the Navajo Indian Reservation in Arizona. Governor Doyle was selected to serve as Dane County District Attorney for three terms before spending another 12 years as Wisconsin's Attorney General. While Attorney General, he served as the President of the National Association of Attorneys General, where he coordinated efforts in large multi-state matters in public health, antitrust, white-collar crime, and consumer protection, among others. He also argued three cases before the Supreme Court, finishing with an undefeated record winning all three cases. As governor, he led nationally recognized successes in education, economic development, biotechnology, energy, environment, infrastructure, and healthcare. Governor Doyle propelled Wisconsin to a national leader in healthcare by ushering through his signature healthcare initiative, Badger Care Plus. Among other achievements, this plan provided access to affordable healthcare for all kids, with approximately 450,000 kids covered under the new plan. It also provided an opportunity to gain insurance for more than 60,000 low-income working adults without children. Governor Doyle also signed an emergency order requiring health insurance policies to cover young adults up to age 27 under their parents' health plan, just one of his policies that was adopted in national health reform. These are just a few of the many accomplishments illustrating his experience and leadership, which we are fortunate enough to hear more about today. I will now turn the program over to Professor Robert Blendon, but before I do, please join me in welcoming Governor Jim Doyle. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, uh, Bob Blendon. Before we uh, turn this to the governor, uh, just so that we all remember that this is really an experience for you, and it's an opportunity to learn about how people who make very major decisions about things we care a lot about, think about them, the pressures on them, the choices they make, and a chance for you to interact with decision makers. So I'm gonna ask a few questions myself, because there are things when he walked by I wanted to ask him. For students from the health field, it's obvious that he would launch the largest healthcare program for kids of any state. But for me, reading his CV, starting out as a district attorney, an attorney general, a variety of other things, arguing for the Supreme Court, why did you pick this? How did you get yourself so committed to deciding you were going to do a major initiative of this scale uh, in the state? I think it didn't come through some big lifelong commitment to health care. Um, I didn't, uh, along the way, it was never a big cause of mine. Um, 
I would say the first really big effort did come as Attorney General. I was one of the uh, leading attorneys general in the tobacco litigation, which was the single most, the biggest lawsuit actually, in a group of lawsuits in the history of the country, the biggest settlement, uh, and with far, far reaching public health um, uh, implications. So um, I, I kind of came into it as a law enforcement lawyer type. When I first ran for governor in 2002, uh, I don't remember health care ever being a particularly big issue. We had had quite a good program in Wisconsin, started by my uh, predecessor, Badger Care, one of the you know one of the top uh, one of the we were one of the good states, and we had expanded Medicaid coverage and done various things, um, uh, uh, and so it was sort of moving along. But I it really for me largely came out of a major initiative we had called Kids First, which was a whole connection a whole collection of policies. Uh, initiatives directed at making kids uh, growing up safe, secure, healthy, good education. So things from universal four-year-old, uh, three-four-year-old kindergarten, which we got done, uh, quality-rated uh, child care, and obviously when you get into children's issues, the really number one issue is health care, and I that's really where it came from. And as we, I focus, I heard all these governors brag about how they had all their children covered. Well, I come home from these conferences, I say, how come they have them covered and we don't? Well, it turned out they really didn't have them covered. What they had was um, that it, it was uh, the way the federal government kind of keeps score is up to certain incomes, it's presumed that, over certain incomes, it's presumed that health care is available for you, even though we all know if you're a family earning fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 in this country, you can't afford uh, meaningful health insurance. So we actually set out to do it, to give those families the opportunity to buy into our Badger Care program for $20 a month for their children so that every child actually could become uh, covered in Wisconsin. And then the other thing I think is it was a reflection of what the people of Wisconsin's concerned with. It didn't come so much from me it came from what I heard about. So, and they were very specific issues. One of my big causes that I had was autism coverage, um, which in most states and in Wisconsin, before we were finally able to get the law changed after a big fight, autism was not covered on a health insurance policy. So families that had health insurance had this terrible situation where they'd have to mortgage their homes and do all kinds of things, go broke to pay for the treatment. So it was those kinds of real concerns that I would hear every place I went that really led to the opportunity. And then, uh, then there was just some political circumstances. Our big expansion was based on the last waiver given by the Bush administration. And so it was Mike Levitt as the secretary who really, uh, every, lots of states were clamoring for these waivers. And we were the, we were the one that got the one big and last waiver a lot of Democrats were unhappy with me for it because <laughs> part of the waiver was we would agree to a somewhat stripped down Medicaid package for that expanded population. But today nobody knows, I mean, you, you couldn't even tell in the real world whether that stripped down has any real effect or not. So it was, I, th I would say, concern on my part, largely over children, then driven by what people were really focused on in the state of Wisconsin what their real needs were and then an opportunity that uh, we seized. 
One more and then open up. Uh, what was your strategy to get that done? This was easy. In our classroom, this would be a five-minute discussion. Good idea, we did it. Uh, but something tells me it didn't work that way. No, it was a very difficult and long and complicated process. And I had to fight both sides. Uh, my Democratic friends in the legislature were very mad at me. They had put out a proposal for uh, essentially a, well, not essentially, a single-payer state-run plan they were really, uh, they being a number of uh, legislators, were really wanting to show Massachusetts that you don't have it so great here. Wisconsin was going to take the step forward to a major, to a single uh, payer. Well, how are they going to pay for it? A 15% payroll tax on every business in the state of Wisconsin. And I'd say to them, look, I'm governor. Do you realize that that's going to put us at a very serious disadvantage vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis other states in business development attraction if we're slapping a 15% payroll tax? Plus, have you thought about ERISA plans and the, uh, the, 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 those that are completely controlled by the federal law or big self, most major employers are self-insured? Well, we haven't quite thought of that. So it was a beautiful plan on paper. but. It, they were very mad that I didn't embrace it. And on the other hand, we had a group, and this group unfortunately has been growing, in my opinion, of Republican legislators who really don't think government should be in the health care business, and anything that expands it is really, um, it, it, they oppose. So I had to move between that. I had both houses of the legislature, where they were in different party control. And we went through uh, a, a budget that um, they couldn't agree. We were three months overdone in getting the budget done past the deadline. I had them sitting at the governor's mansion day after day, staring at it all, looking at each other. They were, it was just the typical kind of government parties looking at each other. And in the middle of all of that, this was the one big piece that I said just had to get done. And so in those negotiations, uh, it got done. And for what was interesting, not unlike what's happened in Congress in recent times, the Republicans could not agree on a budget, and, and they controlled our lower house, what we call the assembly. So in the end, they agreed to deliver a certain number of Republican votes, and that the Democrats would deliver a certain number. So we actually passed with a, a fairly significant bipartisan, not because anybody acted in a bipartisan manner, but because in the end, what you had to actually do to get it done, that's what it was. Uh, I have other questions, but do we have questions from the audience? Good afternoon. Thank you, Hi. Governor. My name is Rachel Yao, and I'm a PhD student here in the Department of Genetics and Complex Diseases at the school. And I was wondering if you could expand on some of the, the um, crossing party lines or, or building consensus in order to get things accomplished that, you're, that you feel strongly need to be accomplished. Because I think you just described a couple of circumstances where you both worked with the Bush administration to get a waiver, you know, upset fellow Democrats who didn't necessarily agree with the way you were um, moving forward. I wonder if you could talk to us about the decision making in those circumstances and the, the ways that you go forward building consensus in that way. You know, um, I, I think it's never quite so much building consensus as putting together one more vote than what you need in a legislature or where it is, uh, and particularly on health care. I think one of the great challenges we have in this country is we don't have a consensus on it that um, 
you will find in many other countries, at least that I know of, and certainly uh, European countries, a pretty uh, a consensus. I mean, I'm sure there are some people who disagree, but you would find a consensus, whatever that means. Ninety percent of the people would agree that it is a legitimate objective of the government of that uh, of that country to work to assure that people have access to health care. I, we don't have that in the United States. In fact, as you've seen in the whole debate over the Affordable Care Act, I think as you see now in a large number of the Republican governors saying they'll have nothing to do with its implementation, a very different view. And I'm not trying to stoke the political flames here, but to me it's unthinkable if I were governor that even if I really didn't like the federal law for some reason, if the federal government came to me and said, we're going to pay 100% of the cost of getting millions of your citizens or hundreds of thousands of your citizens health insurance, I, I just could not imagine how I would say no because in my world, uh, the way I see the world, that's, there's somebody out there that needs health care and I'm in a position to do it. And I'm not the United States Congress, I'm a governor and this is what the opportunity is. So that's certainly how I approached it with the Bush administration. I had a good relationship with Secretary Levitt. He had been a governor of Utah. I knew he, I knew he shared, uh, you know, he had some market-based things that maybe I would have disagreed with or whatever, but he basically, he and I shared a very basic uh, consensus understanding of what it was we were trying to get done. Um, so I think that um, obviously it's wonderful to have a consensus. But you often don't. What you have is a, a pretty sharp disagreement, and now you have to try to figure out how to put the pieces together to get you to where you want to go. Now, I do think it's important, I always believe this, that you do that in a civil way. And that it's one thing to say you disagree with the other side and that you're going to try to work to defeat their proposals or you're trying to get your proposals done over their opposition. It's another thing to call them names and to, you know, engage in a kind of discourse that really poisons the water and makes it very, very hard to work. So um, I think consensus builds largely over time. I mean, you look at issues that just you couldn't imagine. Um, take gay marriage. Who, who could have imagined that the country would be in a position where just a few years ago it was seen as such a politically volatile issue in my re-election campaign, they did something to me that they, that they were doing all over, which was they put a, a constitutional um, referendum on the ballot on, the, on my election because the thought was, since I opposed the, the measure that would have outlawed gay marriage, that the voters would turn out. So it was seen as a terribly um, harmful position to say that you in any way support it. And yet today we, we, are, we, are, have, we don't have a consensus, but we aren't far away from a consensus with things moving as rapidly as they are. So consensuses build, but I, I think more than thinking you're going to, in, in healthcare, I give the example again, you, there's just obviously, we're in a situation right now where there's just not consensus. And um, and that means if you feel strongly about something, you have to keep sort of pushing it forward, even in even in the face of some pretty uh, stiff opposition. Uh, but I think it's really important to do things respectfully and uh, 
not demonize opponents, and I think obviously we've seen a lot of that in American politics in recent years, that does then help make it difficult to, to move forward. Other questions before I get back in here? I'm sorry, I'm in the health policy program here. And I was curious if you could speak to the students a bit about some of the leadership skills you've seen be successful in moving forward controversial policy. You know, it, I, 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 I hesitated on whether I wanted to say this to this group of students, but the two big architects of my healthcare had no healthcare policy background. <laughs> uh, and, but I thought it was instructive because it shows you what really mattered. When I decided this is going to be our push, so it, it you know, I would use I would use my state of the state speech each year to really decide what are the agenda items that are going to be at the top of the list. And so I decided this is it: the expansion of uh, to to children, uh, childless adults, and the development of exchange, which didn't happen in Wisconsin, but we were down the road towards getting it done. And so my decision was I brought in a team of three people who had been the best, smartest, most effective policy people in my administration. I had used them to develop my economic development policy when I first came into office. The kids' first agenda I uh, spoke about, I used them. Uh, and now when we move to health care, I put them into the key positions as the Secretary of the Department of Health. Uh, as the head of the Medicaid uh, unit for the state um, and as a person who worked in the governor's office. Now, that isn't to say that they did, that, that we didn't use people that had a real f fundamental understanding of health care policy. But what I had was incredibly smart people that knew how to analyze policy that, had, that were rooted in practical, my, the practical political dealings of my administration. So the one person, um, Jason Helgerson, um, who is now the head of Medicaid for the state of New York, having left Wisconsin to, to go there when I left office, he was in the Department of Revenue. I had to order him to do health care. Now he's got a nice big career as a result of it. <laughs> a woman named Karen Timberlake, who became my secretary of the Department of Health, had been my labor negotiator and had done a couple of other jobs. I had to order her that she had to do this. She now held, has a tenure-track position at the University of Wisconsin heading the Population Health Center there with a JD degree. So I mean, that shows the kind of quality of these people, but, um, it was, but they, they were really smart and they understood what the practical uh, consequences of policy were. And they were so good, and I knew this, that when I said to them, look, we need ways to get this done, they would be back in my office with, in you know, two or three weeks with a practical proposal about how we were going to get it done. And I've dealt with so many policy people over the years, brilliant people, wonderful people, who have a great idea on anything, economic development, policy, you name it, environment. And you say, okay, how are we going to get it done? And they're back in my office in three weeks, and you don't know what the heck they're talking about. I don't. Maybe I'm not smart enough. <laughs> so I think that's really it. It is really, uh, obviously, real intelligence, real policy, uh, really, real ability to analyze, pick up, get to the right people, listen, synthesize, and then in dealing with a governor, uh, and this would be true with dealing with any political executive officer, 
then really laying out a, a roadmap of, of here's what we do. These are the pieces. This is how we put it together. How did you find them, Governor? I mean, uh, you had to order them, but they weren't <laughs> sitting right there uh, saying this is what I wanted to do. How did you find them originally? Well, part of what I had was I, I had this huge benefit. I was the first Democratic governor in the state of Wisconsin in 16 years. So there was a huge pool of untapped talent that had been wanting to do things in government for a long time. And they had been, some of them had been in on, on legislative staffs in the state legislature for a minority party. You know, it's, you just aren't that busy doing it. Some of them had done other things. So I had just this wonderful pool when I, when I first started. Um, but for example, just to take those two people, a good example, Karen um, was a graduate of Harvard Law School, applied to be an assistant attorney general when I was attorney general, um, and I hired her. And she was a great <laughs> assistant attorney general, and I became governor. I went to her and said, Karen, we need you. And she said, I have two kids that are both under the age of five. I can't do it. Uh, I said, well, let's find a position you can do. So I wanted her near me. So we found a position that she didn't have quite the time demand. So then the, her kids got a little older, and she was in a position then to do kind of an all-out job as a cabinet secretary. So some of it was you know, finding and then developing. Jason had a public policy background degree and background and had been, uh, was from Milwaukee and was now the, I think the chief of staff or something to the mayor of San Jose. And when I got elected, he wanted to come home. And I didn't know him. I knew people who knew him. And um, he came and uh, so, uh, you know, but I, I do want to really make this point, use this opportunity. For those of you who really want to affect public policy, look at governor's offices. Um, God help you all when you go to Washington, but there are millions of you guys in Washington. There are millions of you. There aren't millions of you in state capitals. Uh, and so Wisconsin's a state of about six million people. We're like the 21st, 22nd largest state, so we're not a big state. We're not a tiny state. We're just exactly uh, in the middle. But the people, that, you know, here these, Jason and Karen to name two, and there were a couple others that were part of it, you know, they, they did something that actually got hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people health insurance. And they could, and in Washington, you know, it's not to demean it, it's incredibly important work on the, on the legislative staffs and in uh, foundations and think tanks and universities, incredibly important. But if you want to, if you get yourself in the right spot in the governor's office, you actually will affect more, play, I think, more people than anybody in any other position politically in the country. Other questions? Thank you, Governor. Uh, my name is Gergana. I'm a student at the uh, Health Policy and Management program here. And your efforts have focused largely on children's health care. Um, so last year, a number of states had outbreaks of vaccine-preventable diseases, and Wisconsin was one of them. Um, pertussis was a big problem, I think. My question to you is how uh, did your state handle the crisis from a health services perspective, but also from uh, public outreach and communications, public communications perspective? Well, last year I wasn't governor, so I can't talk specifically, but I can talk sort of generally about it. Uh, we actually have had uh, a, a, a very good uh, reporting system on uh, one of the better in the country. Um, uh, of, 
of, of, of epidemiologists and hospitals in Wisconsin are very good about reporting and we have people who analyze that data and, and um, look for it. Um, and, and so we, we generally have been pretty good on it. It's not to say we're, you know, there's not a wall around our state so we're not immune from things that come into the state and, and, uh, and what happens to people. I think the biggest problem we have um, uh, in this regard though, and it's true everywhere, is getting children health insurance is a lot different than having children actually use the health system and use it well and use it appropriately and get the inoculations in a timely manner and do the well baby uh, work in early childhood. Um, and that's, that's very, very hard to get at for a government. A government does a pretty, you know, if, you've, if you're in Wisconsin did and Massachusetts done, you can do, if you want to, you can do a pretty good job of getting people health coverage. But you really need to have the provider community, the, um, the advocacy groups, all uh, neighborhood, so, you know, you need a really broad effort to get people to use it well. It always troubled me very deeply that when my children were young, my wife and I knew exactly what to do, who to call. We knew the name of the nurse. We obviously knew our doctor, but we, more importantly, we knew by first name the name of the nurse of our doctor. And so if there was an earache or something, we just simply made a call and we had the antibiotic prescribed and, and, it was, and we all went off to our jobs and the world worked pretty well. Well, for most of the people that state programs are dealing with, they may not know who their doctor is, much less who the um, nurse is who works with the doctor. It's really frightening to find how many, uh, even people who, children with Badger Care in Wisconsin, which we call our program, um, when you go and talk to them in early, the earliest stages, they don't even know where they would go if there was an emergency. Like where is the local, what would you do if your child broke an arm right now? If you ask that question, and you probably have all studied this way beyond anything that I just sort of know from what I see, a large percentage of people would not be able to answer that question. So that kind of information, we have a long way to go. And even one of my concerns in the Affordable Care Act, it's still all about coverage right now. It is not about utilization and that is a big big problem other questions hi governor <laughs> I'm Christine Ardesia I'm in the environmental health uh, program here a PhD candidate and I'm wondering how much of a concern was climate change during your governorship and did you put in place policies to help the state prepare and was there a tremendous deal of pushback considering the, the previous Republican administration as well? Um, it was a big issue for me um, and we did a lot of work on it. Um, my successor's of a different party and he doesn't, he says he doesn't think it has, man has, that it's not human uh, affected and so they've gone in a very different direction. But it does trouble me how political that issue has become. I mean, I, I just can't quite understand why now it's a matter of political belief, not scientific belief. Democrats believe that uh, humans are having an adverse effect on the climate of the country and Republicans believe that humans aren't. 
And, you know, it depends what party you belong to. It isn't like what the facts are or anything. It, belong, it depends what party. Um, but to show you how divisive it's come, when I first became governor in the first year or two, we passed what at the time was one of the top, the best, the top uh, renewable portfolio standards in the country. And we said that we would hit 15% renewables by 2015. And we, and I had a, a totally Republican legislature, and there was no, I bet there weren't more than three votes against that. This was probably in 2004. In fact, the major sponsor of it was one of the most conservative members of the legislature. This was not political. Uh, in my last year, I, I tried to get us to 25 by 25. And um, it had become a completely partisan vote, including quite a number of Democrats who now saw it as sort of a, a liberal, um, you know, uh, liberals running crazy or something. And I couldn't get it done. Um, even though we built the consensus, we had the utilities on board. Now, to me, in a state like Wisconsin, we have no coal, we have no natural gas, uh, we have no petroleum. We spend uh, on the, uh, in, in the area of about $25 billion a year leaves the state of Wisconsin for purposes of purchasing those fuel sources. Why in the world, whatever you think about climate change, if you're in Wisconsin, wouldn't you be in favor of 25% of that economy coming from energy production within the state of Wisconsin? Uh, wind and solar and, and, and uh, geothermal and, and so on. Why, I, to me, uh, it, it made no sense. We did a lot. We, um, we, we had a patchwork of local regulations about siting of wind farms, and it was very hard to site them. And we, we got through all of that and got a major compromise, everybody on board. My successor came in, and, and we had, and as a result of that, we had $600 million of wind projects that were ready to be built two years ago. They were all ready to go. Shovel, it was done. The, the permitting had been done. My successor came in, issued an emergency order that suspended those new regulations, and all of that money left the state. None of those projects went forward. They could go to Iowa, they could go to Illinois, they could go to other states that have, you know, the wind is blowing, actually it's even blowing better in Iowa and Illinois <laughs> than it is in Wisconsin. So why should they hang around in that kind of atmosphere? So to me, this issue is not only about climate change, it is about real basic economics and job growth. Um, but we are at a, I mean, talk about getting back to the, one of the early questions about consensus. I mean, we, we have lost, and this troubles me deeply about the course direction of our politics, we've lost a consensus that we are going to believe in science. <laughs> you know, if you think about Dwight Eisenhower as President of the United States through the 1950s, coming out of World War II, there, this is the era that when I was in grade school, there wasn't a person in the world that would not have believed in the basic, uh, the basic scientific method and the basic kind of consensus of science, Democrats or Republicans. I thought about this since. I mean, Eisenhower had won a world war based on science. 
he, you know, I mean, that whole war machine, for better or worse, from the, you know, the atom bomb to the weather, meteorological decisions on when to land on the shores of, uh, 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 of Normandy to all of it. If, if we had been calling that based on religious principles, we probably wouldn't have won. So now, uh, and it's true of everything, the medical science. I mean, people who, are, who are, seem so opposed to this kind of idea that science should at least be the basis that we can all kind of work from, they go into great medical facilities and get treated as a result of these huge, you know, scientific things. And yet we do not have a consensus today on whether or not we accept science. I can really get going on this. But for example, if you've heard the argument when they talk about evolution being, uh, uh, about creationism being taught as a science, they say, well, evolution's just a theory too. And it's sort of like, did you never go to school where you turn what scientific theory is compared to, oh, I have a theory that sounds like this, but a scientific theory is part of a whole testing and analyzing and assessing and, and then you move on to sort of where that theory leads you. It's just like, well, evolution's a theory, creationism's a theory, 50-50. Um, <laughs> You know, so I, I think this, uh, you know, climate change is now this huge challenge that if we can't come to a consensus on science, then it becomes almost impossible to get to solutions. And um, so I, I saw it in, um, you know, at, at University of Wisconsin-Madison is one of the big uh, medical uh, research centers in the country, and much of the early stem cell work was done there. Uh, the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation, which is sort of the tech transfer, owns the, the licensing rights of seven of the most widely used 11 stem cell lines that are used in research. This is fun, this is basic to us. And yet I had to veto a bill that would have outlawed stem cell research in the state of Wisconsin. And so this is a big, I mean, climate change is the one that's right there in front of us right now in which, but, and I wish we could at least get to a consensus of what we were, I was always taught, my kids were taught not that long ago, which is, look, this is science. And you can, you know, have different religious theory, you know, beliefs and everything, that's great, but let's at least as a universal kind of language, let's accept science. Uh, Thanks, Governor Doyle. My name is Juan Carlos. I'm a medical student and also a master's student in health and social behavior. And you got to exactly what I wanted to ask about. But my next question to follow up with the importance of science or its role in this kind of guidance of policy making is what uh, kind of advice do you have for us? As some of us may, you know, have future leadership positions where we could inform policy making from the scientific background. What are ways that we can use to kind of convince those that have the votes in order to make these changes? Uh, we, I got a sense that you know we have an understanding <laughs> that there's a need for this, but what are some some advice? Well, it's really it's, uh, <laughs> boy, you'll come up to the better answer than I will because, but I will make a couple of comments to those of you with scientific backgrounds. It is so hard for people who deal in the world of science to understand politics, as hard as it is for people in the world of politics to understand science. In science, the world, while not uh, totally explainable, there is a methodology and a process by which you try to come up with explanations. 
in politics, it is often sort of a haphazard uh, set of factors that are going on in a very random way that decide outcomes of things. And so I have been there many times when people with scientific backgrounds have then tried to lecture uh, legislative bodies or others about science. And I just watched the eyes glaze over and, uh, you know, and they sort of just move, uh, you know, minds wander off to like, what am I doing later today? And, um, and, and, and at the same time, I, I have many dear friends that are in science and they, it, to them it's just inexplicable that people don't just behave the way, there's, the, way the scientists think they're supposed to behave. So, I mean, to me, I will, I will just say I don't have the answer. I do believe the answer lies in this room and with people like you all around uh, the country that are, you know, who have scientific backgrounds and are now really trying to work and understand uh, uh, how the political process and the public policy making goes. And um, I do think some of this is education. Um, I do believe, you know, in the era I grew up, and I, you know, I really don't want to ever say everything was always better back then, because in so many ways the world's so much better today than it was back then. But we were all taught that science was critical to our life, and we all believed that absolutely fundamentally. And our parent, I mean, it was part of a generation of what had happened. If you look at American history through the post-World uh, War II years, the people like my parents that had fought in a war and came back, they believed science was the way that this, that our country and our world was really going to move forward. And there, there were other, there have been other outbursts like that in American history. If you study post-Civil War history in the United States, there was a great belief in those days that what was then what we look back at and think is that was science, but it was seen, it was a time when we believed that the American potential was limitless because of our devotion to and commitment to science. We clearly have to get back to that. So one of the things I would really suggest is all of you advocate for good science education at all stages. And all of you get involved in politics, at least at this level, in local school boards and local educations. And all of you work to fight back these ideas that creationism is a science. And all of you really focus on making sure that the educational, uh, that, that, that the science education at all levels for all kids, from poor neighborhoods and middle class neighborhoods and rich neighborhoods, that there is good science education. I, I just think that that's, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about what I did in healthcare as governor. If, uh, to me, I always wanted to be known as the education governor because I think that's what the key to everything is. And so that's one thing I would really urge you, while you're talking to all the highfalutin senators and presidents and governors and everything, whatever you're doing, <laughs> make sure you're really also paying attention to what's happening at the local schools and what the level of education, of science education is that's, that's going on there. And it isn't just about creating jobs with science, which unfortunately a lot of our education now is, well, what's the job you're going to get from this? Even if people don't, even if they're professional baseball players, have nothing, well, actually there's a lot of physics in that. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, I mean, no matter what you do, having people that have a basic scientific knowledge and who are committed to it is really important. If it's not, let me just change the subject. I can't avoid. Um, we're in a situation where guns and gun violence 
uh, is now on the agenda for every governor in the United States. This is not the first time that these issues have occurred. So I can't escape asking you, uh, two terms as governor, what did you do, what it was like, what advice do you give for the next round of these very difficult debates? You know, I'm really trying not to just tell all of you good, hopeful people that just forget it. There's nothing you can do about this. Because <laughs> I, but I'm going to express a little frustration. It says, I've been fighting these fights for a long time. Um, I am proud to say I had an F minus rating from the NRA. <laughs> um, in one of my elections for attorney general, they sent Charlton Heston, who was, a, you know, came into Wisconsin for several days in an attorney general's race to try to beat me, and that was because this was pre-Brady law. I was trying to get background checks done, which we did get done in Wisconsin before the Brady law came in. Um, and uh, when I ran for re-election in 2006 for governor, I was the number one target, as they would say, of the NRA nationally. They won, and they, I never lost an election. I, I, I always try to tell political people the, the bark is so much worse than the bite. I had huge political, the biggest, the most dramatic political fights I had as governor are on several occasions I vetoed laws that would have allowed you to carry a concealed weapon. In Wisconsin, no concealed weapons. There are now. This has been changed since I left office. And they, it would, they'd pass it and I would veto it and we would have these late night veto override sessions and the, the Democrats were all scared to death and each time I eke it out by one vote and the poor one legislator who voted for me would just have the whole world would come down on once it was a him and once it was a her head. Um, it is brutal and, it, and, and um, you know my focus what I've worked on in the past was background checks uh, universal background checks. I've fought this battle for 12 years. And, you know, it's just, I hope to God we finally get the so-called uh, uh, gun show loophole closed. But also, you know, there's a lot of focus that's being put on uh, the mass shootings. But go into the Milwaukee or Boston or anywhere and see what these kids are coming in with. And the gun I've always, I mean, I hope they get the military assault weapons off the market, but the other one is these little, uh, these little, um, uh, you know, a little less than three-inch barrel. You, they, they're manufactured. This was a number of years ago, so I assume the cost is probably maybe it's up a little. But you can make them for like twenty-five bucks. They retail for like fifty, seventy-five dollars. They're down on the street. Kids are buying them for five, fifteen dollars, and they do a lot of damage to people. Um, so to you all, and I know you've heard this, but this is really critical. Um, I really came to this issue in a big way when I was Attorney General because of emergency room docs at Children's Hospital in Milwaukee. That, and and they, they really made it their cause. And this is one where people with a medical background really can make a difference because when a doctor stands up and says, I'm sick of treating kids that are coming in that are getting shot, 17% um, of kids that come in as victims of violent crime, not just shooting but other violent crime, are back within three years again as victims of violent crime. 
there are interventions that really work in Milwaukee at this children's hospital just by really working with these kids, having them have some counseling, some uh, ability to get back into the community, tracking them in their life as they come out. They've been able to reduce that to less than 1%, not by some fancy medical thing, but by just simple tracking these kids, staying with them, giving them the support and the need of, of, of what they have. So I only say that to say this really is a public health issue. It is an issue that if there were other things that were harming our kids at this level, there would be, no, you know, we would have consensus that well, let's do something about it. And yet somehow when it's our kids getting shot with guns, we just cannot seem to come to that point of saying we have to do something about it. So again, I, this is one where all those of you that have science backgrounds and have particularly have medical backgrounds, your voices can really be heard. And I will guarantee you this isn't gonna end this will be one you'll be debating 10 years from now, 15 years from now. It's one of the most amazing things that's ever happened that they created a constitutional right by popular, by, by PR, which is what really happened in the United States. The Supreme Court, after 200 years of jurisprudence, came up a, a few years ago with the opinion that the Second Amendment is some kind of individual right to own a gun, which had never been ruled that way before. And so these people who hate activist judges and talk about how who are judges moving away from original, you know, the originalists, they forget it. When it comes to guns, none of those rules apply. We're just going to change all of the jurisprudence of this country, which they did. So it's a bad, because of that decision, it's going to be an issue that's going to be, you're going to have to deal with for a long time. But I think those of you in the room that may feel the way I do about it, I think you're going to have a, can, you can have a very big say and a very big influence on this. I think we have time for one more question. Thank you very much, um, Governor Jim Dorn. My name is Adibayo Weye. I'm an MPH student at Policy Focus. Um, my question is, I would like to know if there was any scenario during your tenure as um, the governor of Wisconsin that um, you um, like took decisions that resulted, um, that did not conform to like political ideologies of your party, and um, if such decisions actually um, led to some form of conflict, conflict within the party, and then the steps you took to kind of resolve the conflict. Yes, good question. Um, yes, I, uh, I mean, generally speaking, and I think you'll find this true of governors in the United States of both parties, I was seen by many of the Democrats as not nearly as, as a general political philosophy, I was seen as not nearly as liberal as they were. Um, and I think you'll find often on the Republican side that a Republican governor will be seen as not nearly as conservative as the party. Because a governor, unlike a United States senator or member of Congress or some other positions, a governor actually has to govern. And so yeah, I had to really worry about uh, uh, what the, how, you know, that the schools are running well. Or, so I'll give you an example. In Wisconsin, there's been a big battle for many years over private school vouchers. Um, and this has happened in some other parts of the country, but, but the most extensive use of this is in the city of Milwaukee. I don't think it's been good. I think that it's had a very serious effect on the public school system. There have been no controls. We finally got some in place. There were no controls on these schools and so on. So I had a lot of reasons to be against it. And yet, and I won't go into the big long story, there came a moment 
when I had to decide was I basically going to shut this program off, including telling kids that were in voucher schools that they could no longer go to that school. Some of these schools were very good schools, and some of these kids were getting good educations. Now, if I were way back at the beginning, I would, I, and I had been governor when this was passed, I would have vetoed it. But now we were 15 years down the road, and, there were, and so I had to come to a compromise that made sure that kids who were doing well in those schools could remain in those schools, even though as a matter of political philosophy, I might not have liked it. And a lot of members of my party who had been fighting this battle and the, the private school voucher people have huge amounts of money and they attack Democrats in Wisconsin. It's the biggest source of independent money that comes in to fight Democrats. So the idea that I would actually side with these people in, or at least compromise with them drove people in my party crazy. But it shows you an example. I could not say to somebody, I know your child is getting a very good education and they're three, two years away from graduating high school and going on to college. Sorry, your school's done. Let them go off and do what they're doing. So that's the, and you know, as far as how I tried to deal with it, I tried to just explain it. But I wouldn't say that many of my uh, Democratic friends agreed with it um, or were happy with me. But, um, uh, and, and then I would say generally on, business and taxes, I was seen as much more moderate than where the Democrats might wanted to have been. And um, again, I, you know, it, it's, it's easier when it's your same party because I know them all very well personally and I'm, all, I'm out campaigning for them and I'm raising money for them and I'm helping them in many other ways. So they can't really get too mad at me because they, or at a governor, because they need the governor, whereas the other party doesn't have that same need. But those are, there are many of those kinds of examples, again, where a governor gets caught. Governor has to really, you can't just stand on political philosophy. You've got to actually worry about what the reality is that's in front of you. Governor, in this situation, we needed you. And thank you very, very much. <laughs> well, thank you. This has been a production of Decision Making Voices from the Field at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.harvard.edu backslash translation. We encourage you to share Decision Making Voices from the Field.